Chapter fifty three, part three of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume five. Chapter fifty three. Fate of the Eastern Empire, part three. The most lofty titles and the most humble postures, which devotion has applied to the supreme being, have been prostituted by flattery and fear to creatures of the same nature with ourselves. The mode of adoration, of falling prostrate on the ground and kissing the feet of the emperor, was borrowed by Diocletian from Persian servitude, but it was continued and aggravated till the last age of the Greek monarchy, excepting only on Sundays when it was waved from a motive of religious pride. This humiliating reverence was extracted from all who entered the royal presence, from the princes invested with the diadem and purple, and from the ambassadors who represented their independent sovereigns, the caliphs of Asia, Egypt, or Spain, the kings of France and Italy, and the Latin emperors of ancient Rome. In his transactions of business, Lutprand, bishop of Cremonia, asserted the free spirit of a Frank and the dignity of his master, Otho. Yet his sincerity cannot disguise the abasement of his first audience. When he approached the throne, the birds of the golden tree began to warble their notes, which were accompanied by the roarings of two lions of gold. With his two companions, Lutprand was compelled to bow and to fall prostrate, and thrice to touch the ground with his forehead. He arose, but in the short interval the throne had been hoisted from the floor to the ceiling, the imperial figure appeared in new and more gorgeous apparel, and the interview was concluded in haughty and majestic silence. In this honest and curious narrative, the bishop of Cremona represents the ceremonies of the Byzantine court, which are still practised in the sublime port, and which were preserved in the last ages by the dukes of Muscovy or Russia. After a long journey by sea and land from Venice to Constantinople, the ambassador halted at the Golden Gate, till he was conducted by the formal officers to the hospitable palace prepared for his reception. But this palace was a prison, and his jealous keepers prohibited all social intercourse either with strangers or natives. At his first audience, he offered the gifts of his master, slaves and golden vases and costly armour. The ostentatious payment of the officers and troops displayed before his eyes the riches of the empire. He was entertained at a royal banquet, in which the ambassadors of the nations were marshalled by the esteem or contempt of the Greeks. From his own table, the emperor, as the most signal favour, sent the plates which he had tasted, and his favourites were dismissed with a robe of honour. In the morning and evening of each day, his civil and military servants attended their duty in the palace. Their labours were repaid by the sight, perhaps by the smile of their lord. His commands were signified by a nod or a sign. But all earthly greatness stood silent and submissive in his presence. In his regular or extraordinary processions through the capital, he unveiled his person to the public view. The rites of policy were connected with those of religion, 
and his visits to the principal churches were regulated by the festivals of the Greek calendar. On the eve of these processions, the gracious or devout intention of the monarch was proclaimed by the heralds. The streets were cleared and purified, the pavement was strewn with flowers, the most precious furniture, the gold and silver plate and silken hangings, were displayed from the windows and balconies, and a severe discipline restrained and silenced the tumult of the populace. The march was opened by the military officers at the head of their troops. They were followed in long order by the magistrates and ministers of the civil government. The person of the emperor was guarded by his eunuchs and domestics, and at the church door he was solemnly received by the patriarch and his clergy. The task of applause was not abandoned to the rude and spontaneous voice of the crowd. The most convenient stations were occupied by the bands of the blue and green factions of the circus, and their furious conflicts, which had shaken the capital, were insensibly sunk to an emulation of servitude. For me, the side they echoed in responsive melody the praises of the emperor. Their poets and musicians directed the choir, and long life and victory were the burden of every song. The same acclamations were performed at the audience, the banquet, and the church, and as an evidence of boundless sway, they were repeated in Latin, Gothic, Persian, French, and even English language, by the mercenaries who sustained the real or fictitious character of those nations. By the pen of Constantine Porphogenitus, this science of form and flattery had been reduced into a pompous and trifling volume which the vanity of succeeding times might enrich with an ample supplement. Yet the calmer reflection of a prince would surely suggest that the same acclamations were applied to every character and every reign, and if he had risen from a private rank, he might remember that his own voice had been the loudest and most eager in applause, at the very moment when he envied the fortune, or conspired against the life of his predecessor. The princes of the north, of the nation, says Constantine, without faith or fame, were ambitious of mingling their blood with the blood of the Caesars, by their marriage with a royal virgin, or by the nuptials of their daughters with a Roman prince. The aged monarch, in his instructions to his son, reveals the secret maxims of policy and pride, and suggests the most decent reasons for refusing these insolent and unreasonable demands. Every animal, says the discreet emperor, is prompted by the distinction of language, religion, and manners. A just regard to the purity of descent preserves the harmony of public and private life. But the mixture of foreign blood is the fruitful source of disorder and discord. Such had ever been the opinion and practice of the sage Romans. Their jurisprudence prescribed the marriage of a citizen and a stranger. In the days of freedom and virtue, a senator would have scorned to match his daughter with a king. The glory of Mark Antony was sullied by an Egyptian wife, and the emperor Titus was compelled, by popular censure, to dismiss with reluctance the reluctant Bernice. This perpetual interdict was ratified by the fabulous sanction of the great Constantine. The ambassadors of the nations, more especially of the unbelieving nations, were solemnly admonished, that such strange alliances had been condemned by the founder of the church and city. The irrevocable law was inscribed on the altar of St. Sophia, 
and the impious prince who should stain the majesty of the purple was excluded from the civil and ecclesiastical communion of the Romans. If the ambassadors were instructed by any false brethren in the Byzantine history, they might produce three memorable examples of the violation of this imaginary law. The marriage of Leo, or rather of his father Constantine the Fourth, with the daughter of the king of the Shazars, the nuptials of the granddaughter of Romanus with a Bulgarian prince, and the union of Bertha of France or Italy with young Romanus, the son of Constantine Porphogenitus himself. To these objections three answers were prepared, which solved the difficulty and established the law. The deed and guilt of Constantine Corpronimus were acknowledged. The Isaurian heretic, who sullied the baptismal font and declared war against the holy images, had indeed embraced a barbarian wife. By this impious alliance he accomplished the measures of his crime, and was devoted to the just cause of and was devoted to the just censure of the one the deed and guilt of constantine corpronimus were acknowledged the assyrian heretic who sullied the baptismal font and declared war against the holy images had indeed embraced a barbarian wife by this impious alliance he accomplished the measure of his crimes and was devoted to the just censure of the church and of posterity Two. Romanus could not be alleged as a legitimate emperor. He was a plebeian usurper, ignorant of the laws and regardless of the honour of the monarchy. His son Christopher, the father of the bride, was the third in rank in the college of princes, at once the subject and the accomplice of a rebellious parent. The Bulgarians were sincere and devout Christians, and the safety of the empire with the redemption of many thousand captives, depended on this preposterous alliance. Yet no consideration could dispense from the laws of Constantine. The clergy, the senate, and the people disapproved the conduct of Romanus, and he was reproached both in his life and death as the author of the public disgrace. 3. For the marriage of his own son with the daughter of Hugo, king of Italy, a more honourable defence is contrived by the wise Porphyrogenitus. Constantine, the great and holy, esteemed the fidelity and valour of the Franks, and his prophetic spirit beheld the vision of their future greatness. They alone were accepted from the general prohibition. Hugo, king of France, was the lineal descendant of Charlemagne, and his daughter Bertha inherited the prerogatives of her family and nation. The voice of truth and malice insensibly betrayed the fraud or error of the imperial court. The patrimonial estate of Hugo was reduced from the monarchy of France to the simple country of Arles, though it was not denied that, in the confusion of the times, he had usurped the sovereignty of province, and invaded the kingdom of Italy. His father was a private noble, and if Bertha derived her female descent, from the Carlovingian line, every step was polluted with illegitimacy or vice. The grandmother of Hugo was the famous Valdara, the concubine, rather than the wife, of the second Lothar, whose adultery, divorce, and second nuptials had provoked against him the thunders of the Vatican. His mother, as she was styled, the great Bertha, 
was successfully the wife of the Count of Arles, and of the Marquess of Tuscany. France and Italy were scandalized by her gallantries, and, till the age of threescore, her lovers of every degree were the zealous servants of her ambition. The example of maternal incontinence was copied by the King of Italy, and the three favoured concubines of Hugo were decorated with the classic names of Venus, Juno, and Semele. The daughter of Venus was granted to the solicitations of the Byzantine court. Her name of Bertha was changed to that of Eudoxa, and she was wedded, or rather betrothed, to young Romanus, the future heir of the Empire of the East. The consummation of this foreign alliance was suspended by the tender age of the two parties, and, at the end of five years, the union was dissolved by the death of the virgin spouse. The second wife of the Emperor Romanus was a maiden of plebeian, but of Roman birth. And their two daughters, Theophano and Anne, were given in marriage to the princes of the earth. The eldest was bestowed, as the pledge of peace, on the eldest son of the great Otho, who had solicited this alliance with arms and embassies. It might legally be questioned how far a Saxon was entitled to the privilege of the French nation, but every scruple was silenced by the fame and piety of a hero who had restored the empire of the West. After the death of her father-in-law and husband, Theophano governed Rome, Italy, and Germany during the minority of her son, the third Otho and the Latins have praised the virtues of an empress, who sacrificed to a superior duty the remembrance of her country. In the nuptials of her sister Anne, every prejudice was lost, and every consideration of dignity was superseded, but the stronger argument of necessity and fear. A pagan of the north, Wolodomir, great prince of Russia, aspired to a daughter of the Roman purple, and his claim was enforced by the threats of war, the promise of conversion, and the offer of a powerful succour against a domestic rebel. A victim of her religion and country, the Grecian princess was torn from the palace of her fathers, and condemned to a savage reign, and a hopeless exile on the banks of the Borysthenes, or in the neighbourhood of the polar circle. Yet the marriage of Anne was fortunate and fruitful. The daughter of her grandson, Jerusalus, was recommended by her imperial descent, and the king of France, Henry I, sought a wife on the last borders of Europe and Christendom. In the Byzantine palace, the emperor was the first slave of the ceremonies which he imposed, of the rigid forms which regulated each word and gesture, besieged him in the palace, and violated the leisure of his rural solitude. But the lives and fortunes of millions hung on his arbitrary will, and the firmest minds, superior to the allurements of pomp and luxury, may be seduced by the more active pleasure of commanding their equals. The legislative and executive powers were centred in the person of the monarch, and the last remains of the authority of the senate were finally eradicated by Leo the philosopher. A lethargy of servitude had benumbed the minds of the Greeks. In the wildest tumults of rebellion they never aspired to the idea of a free constitution. And the private character of the prince was the only source and measure of their public happiness. 
superstition riveted their chains. In the church of St. Sophia he was solemnly crowned by the patriarch. At the foot of the altar they pledged their passive and unconditional obedience to his government and family. On his side he engaged to abstain as much as possible from the capital punishments of death and mutilation. His orthodox creed was subscribed with his own hand, and he promised to obey the decrees of the seven synoids and the canons of the holy church. But the assurance of mercy was loose and indefinite. He swore, not to his people, but to an invisible judge, and, except the inexpiable guilt of heresy, the ministers of heaven were always prepared to preach the indefeasible right, and to absolve the venial transgressions of their sovereign. The Greek ecclesiasticals were themselves the subjects of the civil magistrate. At the nod of a tyrant, the bishops were created, or transferred, or deposed, or punished with an ignominious death. Whatever might be their wealth or influence, they could never succeed like the Latin clergy in the establishment of an independent republic. And the patriarch of Constantinople condemned, what he secretly envied, the temporal greatness of his Roman brother. Yet the exercise of boundless despotism is happily checked by the laws of nature and necessity. In proportion to his wisdom and virtue, the master of an empire is confined to the path of his sacred and laborious duty. In proportion to his vice and folly, he drops the sceptre too weighty for his hands, and the motions of the royal image are ruled by the imperceptible thread of some minister or favourite, who undertakes for his private interest to exercise the task of the public oppression. In some fatal moment, the most absolute monarch may dread the reason or the caprice of a nation of slaves, and experience has proved that whatever is gained in the extent is lost in the safety and solidity of regal power. Whatever titles a despot may assume, whatever claims he may assert, it is on the sword that he must ultimately depend to guard him against his foreign and domestic enemies. From the age of Charlemagne to that of the Crusades, the world, for I overlook the remote monarchy of China, was occupied and disputed by the three great empires or nations of the Greeks, the Saracens, and the Franks. Their military strength may be ascertained by a comparison of their courage, their arts and riches, and their obedience to a supreme head, who might call into action all the energies of the state. The Greeks, far inferior to their rivals in the first, were superior to the Franks, and at least equal to the Saracens in the second and third of these warlike qualifications. The wealth of the Greeks enabled them to purchase the service of the poorer nations, and to maintain a naval power for the protection of their coasts and the annoyance of their enemies. A commerce of the mutual benefit exchanged the gold of Constantinople for the blood of Sclovians and Turks, the Bulgarians and Russians. Their valour contributed to the victories of Nicephorus and Zimisces, and if a hostile people pressed too closely on the frontier, they were recalled to the defence of their country and the desire of peace by the well-managed attack of a more distant tribe. The command of the Mediterranean, from the mouth of the Tineus to the columns of Hercules, was always claimed and often possessed 
by the successors of Constantine. Their capital was filled with naval stores and dexterous artifices. The situation of Greece and Asia, the long coasts, deep gulfs, and numerous islands, accustomed their subjects to the exercise of navigation. And the trade of Venice and Amalfi supplied a nursery of seamen to the imperial fleet. Since the time of the Peloponnesian and Punic wars, the sphere of action had not been enlarged, and the science of naval architecture appears to have declined. The art of constructing these stupendous machines which displayed three or six or ten ranges of oars, rising above or falling behind each other, was unknown to the shipbuilders of Constantinople, as well as to the as well as to the mechanician of modern days. The Dramones, or light galleys of the Byzantine Empire, were content with two tier of oars. Each tier was composed of five-and-twenty benches, and two rowers were seated on each bench, who plied their oars on either side of the vessel. To these we must add the captain or centurion, who, in time of action, stood erect with his armour-bearer on the poop, two steersmen at the helm, and two officers at the prow, the one to manage the anchor, the other to point and play against the enemy the tube of liquid fire. The whole crew, as in the infancy of the art, performed the double service of mariners and soldiers. They were provided with defensive and offensive arms, with bows and arrows, which they used from the upper deck, with long pikes, which they pushed through the portholes of the lower tier. Sometimes, indeed, the ships of war were of a larger and more solid construction, and the labours of combat and navigation were more regularly divided between seventy soldiers and two hundred and thirty mariners. But, for the most part, they were of the light and manageable size. And, as the Cape of Malaya in Peloponnesus was still clothed with its ancient terrors, an imperial fleet was transported five miles over land across the Isthmus of Corinth, the principles of maritime tactics had not undergone any change since the time of Thucydides. A squadron of galleys still advanced in a crescent, charged to the front, and strove to impel their sharp beaks against the feeble sides of their antagonists. A machine for casting stones and darts was built of strong timbers in the midst of the deck, and the operation of boarding was effected by a crane that hosted baskets of armed men. The language of signals, so clear and copious in the naval grammar of the moderns, was imperfectly expressed by the various positions and colours of a commanding flag. In the darkness of the night, the same orders, to chase, to attack, to halt, to retreat, to break, to form, were conveyed by the lights of the leading galley. By land, the fire signals were repeated from one mountain to another, a chain of eight stations commanded a space of five hundred miles, and Constantinople in a few hours was appraised of the hostile motions of the Saracens of Tarsus. Some estimate may be formed of the power of the Greek emperors, by the curious and minute detail of the armament which was prepared for the reduction of Crete. A fleet of one hundred and twelve galleys and seventy-five vessels of the Pamphylian style were equipped in the capital, the islands of the Aegean Sea, and the seaports of Asia, Macedonia, and Greece. 
it carried thirty-four thousand mariners, seven thousand three hundred and forty soldiers, seven hundred Russians, and five thousand and eighty-seven maridates, whose fathers had been transplanted from the mountains of Libanus. Their pay, most probably of a month, was computed at thirty-four centenaries of gold, about one hundred and thirty-six thousand pounds sterling. Our fancy is bewildered by the endless recapitulation of arms and engines, of clothes and linen, of bread for the men and of forage for the horses, and of stores and utensils of every description, inadequate to the conquest of a petty island, but amply sufficient for the establishment of a flourishing colony. The invention of the Greek fire did not, like that of gunpowder, produce a total revolution in the art of war. To these liquid combustibles, the city and empire of Constantine owed their deliverance, and they were employed in sieges and sea-fights with terrible effect. But they were either less improved or less susceptible of improvement. The engines of antiquity, the catapult, ballista, and battering-rams, were still of most frequent and powerful use in the attack and defence of fortifications. Nor was the decision of battles reduced to the quick and heavy fire of a line of infantry, whom it were fruitless to protect with armour against a similar fire of their enemies. Steel and iron were still the common instruments of destruction and safety, and the helmets, cuirasses, and shields of the tenth century did not, either in form or substance, essentially differ from those which had covered the champions of Alexander or Achilles. But, instead of accustoming the modern Greeks, like the legionnaires of old, to the constant and easy use of this sultry weight, their armors laid aside in light chariots, which followed the march, till, on the approach of an enemy, they resumed with haste and reluctance the unusual encumbrance. Their offensive weapons consisted of swords, battle-axes, and spears, but the Macedonian pike was shortened a fourth of its length, and reduced to the more convenient measure of twelve cubits or feet. The sharpness of the Scythian and Arabian arrows had been severely felt, and the emperors lamented the decay of archery as a cause of the public misfortunes, and recommended, as an advice and a command, that the military youth, till the age of forty, should assiduously practise the exercise of the bow. The bands, or regiments, were usually three hundred strong, and, as a medium between the extremes of four and sixteen, the foot-soldiers of Leo and Constantine were formed eight deep. But the cavalry charged in four ranks, from the reasonable consideration that the weight of the front could not be increased by any pressure of the hindermost horses. If the ranks of the infantry or cavalry were sometimes doubled, this cautious array betrayed a secret distrust of the courage of the troops, whose numbers might swell the appearance of the line, but of whom only a chosen band would dare to encounter the spears and swords of the barbarians. The order of the battle must have varied according to the ground, the object, and the adversary, but their ordinary disposition, in two lines and a reserve, presented a succession of hopes and resources most agreeable to the temper as well as the judgment of the Greeks. In case of a repulse, the first line fell back into the intervals of the second, and the reserve, breaking into two divisions, 
wheeled round the Franks to improve the victory or cover the retreat. Whatever authority could enact was accomplished, at least in theory, by the camps and marches, the exercises and evolutions, the edicts and books of the Byzantine monarch. Whatever art could produce from the forge, the loom, or the laboratory, was abundantly supplied by the riches of the prince, and the industry of his numerous workmen. But neither authority nor art could frame the most important machine, the soldier himself. And if the ceremonies of Constantine always supposed a safe and triumphal return of the emperor, his tactics seldom saw above the means of escaping a defeat and procrastinating the war. Notwithstanding some transient success, the Greeks were sunk in their own esteem and that of their neighbours. A cold hand and a curious tongue were the vulgar description of a nation. The author of the tactics was besieged in his capital, and the last of the barbarians, who trembled at the name of the Saracens or Franks, could proudly exhibit the medals of gold and silver which they had exhorted from the feeble sovereign of Constantinople. What spirit their government and character denied might have been inspired in some degree by the influence of religion, but the religion of the Greeks could only teach them to suffer and to yield. The emperor Nicephorus, who restored for a moment the discipline and glory of the Roman name, was desirous of bestowing the honours of martyrdom on the Christians, who lost their lives in a holy war against the infidels. But this political law was defeated by the opposition of the patriarch, the bishops, and the principal senators. And they strenuously urged the canons of St. Basil, that all who were polluted by the bloody trade of a soldier should be separated, during three years, from the communion of the faithful. These scruples of the Greeks have been compared with the tears of the primitive Moslems, when they were held back from battle, and this contrast of base superstition and high-spirited enthusiasm unfolds to a philosophic eye the history of the rival nations. The subjects of the last caliphs had undoubtedly degenerated from the zeal and faith of the companions of the Prophet, yet their martial creed still represented the deity as the author of war. The vital though latent spark of fanaticism, the vital though latent spark of fanaticism, still glowed in the heart of their religion, and among the Saracens, who dwelt on the Christian borders, it was frequently rekindled to a lively and active flame. Their regular force was formed of the valiant slaves who had been educated to guard the person and accompany the standard of their lord. But the Moslem and people of Syria and Sicilia, of Africa and Spain, were awakened by the trumpet which proclaimed a holy war against the infidels. The rich were ambitious of death or victory in the cause of God, the poor were eluded by the hopes of plunder, and the old, the infirm, and the women assumed their share of meritorious service by sending their substitutes, with arms and horses, into the field. These offensive and defensive arms were similar in strength and temper to those of the Romans, whom they far excelled in the management of the horse and the bow. The massy silver of their belts, their bridles and their swords, displayed the magnificence of a prosperous nation, and except some black archers of the south, the Arabs disdained the naked bravery of their ancestors. 
Instead of wagons, they were attended by a long train of camels, mules, and asses. The multitude of these animals, whom they bedecked with flags and streamers, appeared to swell the pomp and magnitude of their host. And the horses of the enemy were often disordered by the uncouth figure and odious smell of the camels of the east. Invincible by their patience of thirst and heat, their spirits were frozen by a winter's cold, and the consciousness of their propensity to sleep exacted the most rigorous precautions against the surprises of the night. Their order of battle was a long square of two deep and solid lines, the first of archers, the second of cavalry. In their engagements by sea and land, they sustained with patient firmness the fury of the attack and seldom advanced to the charge, till they could discern and oppress the lassitude of their foes. But if they were repulsed and broken, they knew not how to rally or renew the combat, and their dismay was heightened by the superstitious prejudice, that God had declared himself on the side of their enemies. The decline and fall of the caliphs countenanced their fearful opinion, nor were there wanting, among the Mohammedans and Christians, some obscure prophecies which prognosticated their alternate defeats. The unity of the Arabian Empire was dissolved, but the independent fragments were equal to populous and powerful kingdoms, and in their navy and military armaments, an emir of Aleppo or Tunis might command no despicable fund of skill and industry and treasure. In their transactions of peace and war with the Saracens, the princes of Constantinople too often felt that these barbarians had nothing barbarous in their discipline, and, if they were destitute of original genius, they had been endowed with a quick spirit of curiosity and imitation. The model was indeed more perfect than the copy. Their ships and engines and fortifications were of a less skilful construction, and they confess without shame that the same God who has given a tongue to the Arabians had more nicely fashioned the hands of the Chinese and the heads of the Greeks. End of chapter 53, part 3